of Lebanon formally came into existence in 1943 when its previous occupiers, the French, were themselves occupied by the Germans, and the French government in exile said, basically, you're on the path to freedom, Lebanon, but under our stewardship. And a government that was then elected in Lebanon almost immediately said, yeah, no, we are running ourselves now, which in turn led to the French imprisoning that new government, only to release them a few weeks later in the wake of a great deal of international pressure to do so. Lebanon then became a founding member of the United Nations in 1945, which mooted the claims the French government was still trying to make on the area, even several years after that initial shift toward independence. The country had a somewhat unusual power-sharing structure that allotted influence to different religious groups based on the number of people following each religion, with the majority of that power thus imbued in Christian and Sunni Muslim leaders in coastal cities, Shia Muslim leaders in the south and parts of the eastern portion of the country, and smaller Christian and Druze groups in the country's mountainous regions. When the State of Israel was established just south of Lebanon in 1948, however, there were a series of conflicts between regional Muslim-dominated countries and Israel, which led to a surge in Palestinian refugees fleeing Israel into Lebanon, numbering around 100,000 people initially, but reportedly up to somewhere between 174,000 and 450,000 as of 2017. Part of why it's so tricky to get a solid number on this is because of how chaotic that surge in immigration was for the region, and because of how ramshackle the refugee camps were, and in some cases remain, as Palestinian refugees in Lebanon usually can't get citizenship or ID cards, much less own property or even work in certain occupations like medicine or law. And they haven't been allowed to return to Israel either, leaving them in kind of a limbo between these two geographically small adjacent nations. Even thus disempowered, though, this flood of Muslims into the country dramatically shifted the balance of power between Muslims and Christians in Lebanon. And in 1970, when a group called the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, was defeated in nearby Jordan, many of those militants resettled in southern Lebanon, further tipping the balance and bringing a bunch of military equipment and wielders of that equipment into the region. In 1975, a civil war broke out between an alliance of PLO members and militias made up of local Druze and Muslim groups on one side and a coalition of various Christian groups on the other. By the end of the year, the Lebanese president had asked the Syrian government to step in and help the Christians, who were outnumbered and outskilled, to help restore balance in the country, and they set up a peacekeeping force that was tasked with restoring calm and peace in the region. The PLO then turned its attention south to Israel, 
where it launched a series of terror attacks, killing 37 and wounding 76 Israelis across a series of shootings and bus hijackings, which in turn led to an invasion of Lebanon by the Israeli military, which occupied the southern portion of the country until the United Nations told them to withdraw which they did, though they still retained some control over that region through a wide security zone they set up on the border. Despite that security zone, though, the PLO continued to both attack the Christian minority in that part of the country, which made up about 5% of the population, and the Israelis, often by shelling neighboring Galilee, the Israelis eventually responded to these attacks with airstrikes, one of which hit a multi-story apartment building, which they claimed was partially occupied by PLO offices, but which Lebanese officials said also contained a lot of civilians, 300 of which were killed and 800 of which were injured. And this led to quite a few diplomatic issues for Israel, including a temporary embargo on the sale of U.S. aircraft to the country. Israel invaded Lebanon again in 1982, this time supported by an international force that focused on evacuating PLO forces to get them out of the region, basically. But the Lebanese president, who was an ally of Israel, was assassinated in 1982, which re-inflamed the simmering civil war, leading to several sectarian massacres of one faith group by another and eventually resulting in a peace plan in 1989 that all the local groups agreed to. Again, after years of basically just killing each other and not being able to keep a central government standing for very long because of all the mistrust, violence, and foreign military entities operating inside the country's borders in an attempt to keep that violence from spilling over into other countries. In the same month, the Lebanese parliament approved what's called the TAFE Agreement, which, among other things, outlined how and when the various external military groups would leave Lebanon and how the government would operate if and when they moved away from their faith-based power distribution system. The civil war officially ended in 1990, though it took several more years for most of those military groups to actually leave and primarily Muslim militants in the southern part of the country continued to stir up trouble between the Lebanese government, which often didn't really have much sway over these groups, but which sometimes did, and the Israelis, who were generally targeted by them and targeted them back in return. The Israelis completed their military pullout from Lebanon in 2000, and the Syrian military was convinced to leave mostly because of international pressure and burgeoning mistrust of them internally after a series of Lebanese political leaders were assassinated within a relatively short period of time. Many people suspecting the Israelis of these assassinations but the Lebanese people getting fed up with all the international pseudo-occupiers at that point, hence the Syrians, seeming less trustworthy to them as well. One of those southern military groups, Hezbollah, grew stronger and more brazen during this period, launching raids into Israel, which triggered airstrikes and a ground invasion into Lebanon by the Israeli military an invasion that lasted about a month and which is usually called the 2006 Lebanon War. 
The Lebanese government throughout this period has at times fought with some of these militant groups while also being friendly with or even run by others. And some of the militant groups are inextricably blended with local political factions, meaning government representatives may have been involved in terrorist attacks or sectarian conflicts right before being seated in parliament. So it's tended to be a tricky balance and difficult even for folks in neighboring countries like Israel to determine who is attacking them, a militant group or the Lebanese government, and thus who to strike back against when they are attacked. Hezbollah eventually launched what the government called a coup attempt, seizing western Beirut, the capital city of Lebanon, and sparking a conflict that led to a year and a half of political paralysis, which was ended by the establishment of a unity government that gave veto power to the opposition party. This government collapsed a few years later, in 2011, and sectarian violence surged as a consequence of the civil war being fought in neighboring Syria in 2012, which also led to a surge in refugees from Syria into Lebanon, numbering in the hundreds of thousands in 2013 and around a million by late 2014 all of which further upset an already tenuous power-sharing balance based on sectarian population numbers. What I'd like to talk about today is what happened next, from late 2019 until today, two years later, as the country faces another potential major conflict on the back of several years of just really horrible happenings for the country as a whole and for its people. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, Lebanon Faces Deepening Economic Crisis as Saudis Cut Ties Over Iran. Let's establish a little more context here before diving into the specifics of this article, as I think it'll help paint a more thorough picture of what's going on. In October of 2019, the Lebanese government announced new taxes on fuel, tobacco, and calls made through services like WhatsApp, which is what most people in the area use instead of a more traditional phone service. That announcement led to some very large demonstrations, and those demonstrations evolved from being about those taxes to being about sectarian rule more holistically that aforementioned tradition of power being distributed based on which religious group has the most worshippers. There were also protests related to larger, persistent structural problems that had been endemic within the Lebanese government for a long while, among them issues with liquidity and unemployment, a whole lot of corruption both in the economy and in politics, laws that served to mostly protect the rich and powerful from everyone else, and infrastructure like water and sanitation and electricity that was faulty when it worked at all. The prime minister resigned because of these protests, though most politicians kept their positions of power and just weathered the storm. That economic and political crisis continued into 2020, when in August, a massive explosion at the port of Beirut, and again that's the capital of Lebanon, killed over 200 people, 
and destroyed everything within a huge radius. Thousands of people were injured, and years later the consequences of that blast, caused by 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that was haphazardly stored at the port and accidentally set alight, are still being felt. The area has never really recovered, and though the Prime Minister tendered his resignation in the wake of the explosion, new protests were whipped up with this very visible and deadly example of government incompetence and corruption serving as an overt symbol of pernicious and long-lasting versions of the same that have plagued the country's economy for a very long time. The COVID-19 pandemic hit Lebanon hard as with most other countries around the world. But their difficulty was exacerbated by the government's lack of investment in infrastructure and systems that might have helped with medical care and the implementing of social adjustments and programs that might have limited infections and deaths. 2021 brought warnings from government ministers that aspects of the country were on the verge of collapse that the country could go dark, running out of power, basically, if money wasn't injected into the flailing energy sector. And in October 2021, all of Lebanon lost power for about 24 hours because of this monetary and resource shortage. At the more micro-ground-level scale, people living in Lebanon have suffered through years of double- and triple-digit inflation, and as of late 2021, basic commodity foods and other products are often hard to come by. Protests continue to break out regularly because of the perceived corruption and ineptitude of the government. Power is in and out, sometimes lasting for mere hours a day, and sectarian violence continues around the country. In September 2021, a former TV show presenter and host of the Lebanese version of the game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, named George Kurtahi, became Minister of Information for Lebanon. During a mock parliament meeting that was held a month before he took office, but published online later, Kurtahi called the war being fought in Yemen between Iranian-backed Houthi rebels and the former Yemeni government, backed by Saudi Arabia, quote-unquote absurd, going on to say that the Houthis had a right to defend themselves and didn't do anything to deserve antagonism from the Saudis. The civil war in Yemen has been ongoing since 2014, and the Saudis have been involved since 2015. So they're fairly invested in this, and they were, through that lens, perhaps understandably, irked about this comment from a Lebanese leader. And that brings us back around to the journal piece, which outlines some of the consequences for Lebanon that have resulted from this faux pas against one of the most powerful entities in the region. Namely, the Saudis have leveraged their influence with other Gulf nations to exclude Lebanon from local trade relationships, banning exports from Lebanon and ceasing investments in their economy. Many analysts are seeing this statement by Kradahi as kind of a diplomatic casus belli, though, an excuse to complain about and render punishment on the Lebanese government because of what they perceive to be increasing Iranian influence in the country. And Iran is Saudi Arabia's main, also quite powerful, arch-rival. Both countries crave a more thorough hegemony over the region, and both operate and interface with the rest of the world in different ways. 
So they're tied to each other geographically and mostly hate each other, ideologically and because of the challenge the other poses to their own dominance. As of the day I'm recording this at least, Kradahi has said he won't resign. That may change. He may be pressured to do so by other members of the Lebanese government. But again, the writing seems to be on the wall for many people involved in this crisis that his statements were probably mostly just an excuse for the Saudis to demonstrate their dissatisfaction with increasing Iranian influence in Lebanon allowing them to show Lebanese politicians what they can expect if they don't fall into line and remember where their bread is buttered, basically. Lebanese ambassadors in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, and Bahrain have all been asked to leave, and there's now an impending threat to the millions of dollars worth of remittances sent back to Lebanon by Lebanese workers laboring in those Gulf states about 350,000 such laborers, who could find themselves either kicked out or unable to send that money home, which would kill another income stream for local Lebanese people, but also reduce the amount of foreign currency the government has available, worsening their foreign currency liquidity crisis and extending their inability to easily do business with other nations. It's worth remembering, in these sorts of circumstances, that those who suffer most from this type of turmoil tend to be people who have absolutely nothing to do with any of the politics or manipulation or even physical conflict that strains relations and ruptures economic and diplomatic lifelines. The everyday person in Lebanon likely just wants to put food on the table and a roof over their heads, like anyone else. Some people are pulled into sectarian violence, and others are actively engaged in the sort of politicking that is stirring things up. But the majority of people who are suffering from these consequences are not the people making the decisions or doing the things that are causing that suffering. The people who are doing that tend to be in higher economic tiers and are thus, because of how things function in Lebanon, largely protected from the consequences of their actions. Now that said, relations between Lebanon and Saudi Arabia have been strained for years after the government in 2017 threw their lot in with Hezbollah, which has become very powerful politically and militarily within Lebanon, exerting more influence even than the wealthy nearby Saudis. And because of changes happening elsewhere throughout the world in terms of economic prospects, especially in the energy sector, upon which the Gulf states are especially reliant, almost to an absolute degree, it is likely we'll see more proxy battles of this kind play out as the various power centers, especially Iran and Saudi Arabia, do their best to shore up their resources and defenses, leading into a period of unknowns and heightened threats. We're seeing versions of this around the world, but some of the most intense influence wrangling right now is happening in areas that are economically tethered to raw materials of a kind that may be peaking in influence and value. Still important for a while longer, but maybe not in a handful of decades. It's hard to say for certain, but the way things are tilting, it's likely that nations currently reliant on fossil fuels for the majority of their income in particular like Saudi Arabia, South Sudan, Bahrain, and to some degree Russia, will need to recalibrate how they function at a fundamental level 
and such recalibrations often involve grabbing what they can in terms of resources and influence so that they're in a good spot to pivot hard once they're unable to avoid doing so any longer. This is also just one more proxy battle in a region teeming with proxy battles. Iran being especially skilled at keeping groups like Hezbollah and the Houthi rebels funded, operating asymmetrically throughout the region in such a way that they can typically avoid being targeted directly by those they are hurting through these outside efforts. In this case, Iran's alleged support for the Houthis, which have been striking at Saudi interests since the kingdom joined the civil war in Yemen on the side of the incumbents, that support could allow Iran to establish a firm ally right next door to their biggest rivals, the Saudis. But also, simultaneously, supporting the Houthis is draining Saudi resources and attention. Iran also supports militant groups around the region and the world. Some of this support merely alleged, some of it more overt. But in general, part of their foreign policy seems to be sowing a bunch of seeds that they hope will bloom and help them slowly but surely dominate the Middle East, while the Saudis are doing the same, but more often by leveraging their oil resources and wealth rather than by funding militias and terror cells in strategic locations. For their part, the Lebanese government seems to be keen to heal this rift with the Saudis, to whatever degree they're able, at least. But they also seem to recognize that this is a bigger issue that goes beyond an offensive statement made by a minister before he was a minister. The Lebanese prime minister recently traveled to Glasgow to meet with French and U.S. officials, hoping to get them to mediate the situation. But the prime minister also recently said of the Saudis, quote, We know they are upset. We know that they don't want a government with Hezbollah as strong. We know that they know that we can't have a government without Hezbollah. It is kind of a completely blocked and stalemated situation, end quote. So while efforts will no doubt continue to be made on their part to remedy this situation, this may be a situation that, because of the way the pieces are distributed on the geopolitical chessboard, doesn't have a remedy. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Quiet Zone, Unraveling the Mystery of a Town Suspended in Silence by Stephen Kirksey. This book is about an area that I've actually read about before, though not at book length, located in West Virginia that, because of radio astronomy and the need to keep the radiation levels, especially radio waves, low, or non-existent in the area so they can do radio astronomy, is one of the few places in the United States that is not just teeming with cellular and Wi-Fi signals. And as a consequence, it's an interesting place to live for people doing that type of research, but also for people who are various types of conspiracy theorists, people who have various sorts of conditions, people who are just trying to escape from modern technology and civilization, and what you might call normal vanilla people who just happen to have grown up in this area and who got accustomed to not being around those sorts of things, and so it doesn't seem that strange to them anymore. It's an interesting book. It's written by a journalist, but it's more of a narrative nonfiction type of read as opposed to a straight-up piece of investigative journalism. 
but it's compellingly written and it is an interesting place to learn about. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Quiet Zone by Stephen Kirksey. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other work, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright. And I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.